Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science, half an hour on your radio where we are talking about science who are we? Well, I am Stu, and with me on the show this week, I have Chris. Hello, who Stu. Has got some, who has got some astronomical science to talk about this week. Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I do like a astrophysics or cosmology story. But I just basically, um, I, this one caught my attention simply because of the name Dark Stars. Um, one of your favourite movies, is that right, Stu? Well, yeah, John John Carpenter's uh, first movie before he was famous and made you know classics like Escape from New York and The Thing and Halloween and all those things um, set in space where they're being attacked by a giant beach ball. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, that's not turns out that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about a hypothesis that there could have been these basically stars made out of dark matter in the early universe. So I'm going to explore what the evidence is for that, I guess, and the theory behind it. I don't know. Like I said, it's just because I like the name Dark Stars, really. Um, you, you weren't you weren't attracted to the, the battle between the wimps and the machos? Uh, we will get onto that. We will get onto that. So far, I think the there's a surprise victor in that particular battle, shall we say. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And Claire is Claire will be joining us as well. She is interviewing Dr. Tim O'Hara from Museums Victoria. As you know, it is Science Week coming up. Tim will be delivering a lecture as part of Science Week on Wednesday, the 16th of August. If you're in Melbourne or you're passing through Melbourne, you can get along to that. But otherwise, uh, Claire will be talking to about what this is about, which is called The Wonders of the Deep. It is weird, blobby creatures that were discovered through by the RV investigator, which was a research vessel. Um, I think we've interviewed some of the scientists from that before. They found some amazing things down in the deep ocean. But yeah, we're going to find out about some of the, the blobby creatures from the, from the deep. Well, can't wait to hear that. Uh, so stay tuned. That'll come up later in the show. So it's National Science Week and to celebrate with us today and talk all things deep sea discovery, I have with me Dr. Tim O'Hara from Museums Victoria and Chief Scientist on two, not just one, two research voyages aboard CSIRO's RV Investigator. Tim, welcome to Lost in Science and happy National Science Week. Thank you very much. Yeah, science is cool. And, you know, I'm really happy to be a scientist. I'm really happy to talk science and to do it in Science Week is a buzz because everyone's really tuned in. Tim, you, as I said in the intro, were chief scientist for research voyages on the RV Investigator. Um, Tell us about the RV Investigator and what the research voyages are actually like, because they sound incredible. They are incredible. It's a really different experience, you know, and I feel very privileged to be part of this, but um, it's also a lot of hard work. So um, Australia has a one ocean-going 
I see we have two because the Antarctic ship as well, but the one who operates around Australia is called the RV Investigator. Um, and it's a large research vessel and it's used for all sorts of science. So not just biology, because I'm a biologist, but also climate science and, you know, oceanography and other things as well. So we have this one big boat that sort of travels around Australia in Australian waters mostly um, for 300 days a year. And so wow. it's doing lots and lots of science. And it's that- a big boat. That is that is a lot. It only gets a few holidays. Yeah, it does get a few holidays. Poor ship, yeah. No, it's happiest at sea, you know. It's, it hums when it's at sea, whereas it's grumpy in the port. No, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I don't know. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's not a small ship. It's uh, like almost 100 metres long wow. and it sleeps 60. So we're not talking about a tinny or a little dive boat here. We're, we're talking about a large ocean-going vessel. Um, and so it's, but it's very cool technology. It's very quiet ship, you know. Normal, mm. normally on fishing boats or on science boats, it's really noisy. You know, there's always chains going down and things happening. Whereas on the investigator, it's just built for silence so that we don't disturb marine animals, and so that they can, you know, use uh, different sort of sound equipment on board. And so it's an electric engine, and it just purrs away. So. It's a it's a nice experience. You have to be told to be quiet, you know, next to next to the um, bedrooms. Um, wow! So don't, don't make any noise, which is really unusual for a ship. But yeah, so it's fantastic. Really oh. nice vessel. It sounds amazing. And um, you're a biologist, you say, but there are all yeah. different types of science happening in there. Yeah. How do you get to be chief scientist? Uh, you have to apply. And uh, so it's competitive to get time on the investigator. And generally the whole process is like five years. You know, you have to wow. apply maybe twice because the first time, you know, there's always lots and lots of people applying. So, it's you know, it's quite difficult to get to ship time. And so you have to put out the argument perhaps more than once to the committees that sort of judge these things. And uh, then you're allocated time um, based on national priorities and things like that. So two of our recent voyages have been to the Cocos and Christmas Islands. Um, and that region around there is really little known, but the government kind of wanted to create some new marine parks in the region. So they really wanted some baseline data. So, yeah. you know, and it suited us too because that's really a black hole in terms of research. And so we can just put those two together, you know, like let's do some great science and let's create lots of data that's really useful for marine managers. So win-win. So, yeah, absolutely win-win. So you've sort of touched on a little bit there about why these research voyages um, are so significant. Um, But I guess given your experience sort of leading these voyages, um, can you talk us through any other reasons why, you know, they're so important? Well, you know, the the area that Australia claims as marine waters are, are larger than the land. So, you know, we actually have a lot of water and and a lot of submarine landscapes, and we claim up to 200 nautical miles off the coastline, including around all the islands. So, um, yeah, I think it's something like the third largest marine domain in the world um, after wow. the US and France, actually, mainly because they've got lots of little islands everywhere. Um, but, yeah, so it's really a significant amount of water, and we don't know a lot about it. You know, we don't know. We haven't surveyed very much, particularly in very deep water. Um, so the deep sea has become the new frontier in some ways because, uh, you know, we're just really starting the process of trying to find out what lives in Australian deep sea. And is there competition between the disciplines of science on board? Um... <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, we don't talk to the geologists. No, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, uh, it's a competitive situation, but no, no, no. I mean, all sides is good. And the more we often take what's called piggyback projects on as well. And so we'll try and do multiple things at once. It costs a lot of money to send the ship out. Mm. So you, you just try and absolutely maximise the science. So although we're um, collecting biological samples often, we keep all the rocks. You know, they're good for collections. People you know, want to know the age of the seamounts mm -hmm. or or whatever, the seafloor there. So um, we, we tow geological equipment. Uh, the boat takes up climate data as we go and measuring all the ocean kind of variables like temperature and salinity and a whole lot of other things. So the whole thing is just processing science 24-7, yeah. you know. And it sounds like there's some incidental collaboration that's going on there. Yeah, really, really. I mean, I guess the marine community in Australia is not massive, um, so you do tend to know the people involved and uh, as I said, you know, we always try and maximise those opportunities. Um, you know, the boat sleeps, as I said, 60. Um, there's 20 crew and there's about 10 or 11 CSIRO people come along to, to monitor all the machines. Um, and so that leaves room generally for about 25 scientists or something like that. So, so you know, again, we, we tend to take educators along. So we, we do live crosses to schools. We chat to people, for example, on Cocos and Christmas Island when we were there. We, you know, met the shy president online and showed right. him around the ship, gave him a virtual tour. Um, so we try and engage, you know, as we go mm -hmm. as well. So we have full-time um, photographers and um, communicators on board as well as scientists um, so we can explain what we do. Brilliant. A very yeah. important part of the whole process. The, you, you must come back with some incredible stories and have seen, you know, I mean, any creature from the deep ends up looking, you know, coming up and looking like some sort of space invader. Um, can you share some of your favourite discoveries and findings from the expeditions that you've been on? Sure. Um, you know, every every time a, a bit of sampling equipment comes back on board, you know, it's exciting. Every time we took down a video, it's exciting, you know, because it is actually really rare. You know, you don't go out for many weeks in, or in your whole career in that sort of environment. So, I mean, I do tend to love every minute, you know, to see whales, to see dolphins, mm. to see manta rays going around the ship, flying fish, you know, all of that sort of stuff, which is, you know, you just don't normally experience. And, and it's just, it's just marvellous to be out there. In terms of the animals you know it, it every time something comes up it's it's full-on excitement you know yeah. everyone clusters around <laughs> i mean even the crew come in you know people who are mechanics or or caterers or whatever they come in and want to see what's what's been found it's a real sense of excitement <clears throat> so um yeah, and, and, yeah, they are weird and wonderful, you know. Like, I, I tend to try and move away from this weird and wonderful thing because I, I think everyone thinks of the deep sea as being an alien environment. But, in fact, everything is superbly adapted mm -hmm. to their environment. You know, they, they're long and, and thin because, you know, they don't want to use much energy and they've got huge teeth because they don't want to let go of their prey. You mm -hmm. know, they, if food is so rare down there that if you get some food, you hang on, you know. So the bigger the teeth, the better. So things like that, it's all, it's all because they're superbly adapted. And so you've seen these kind of miracles of evolution come up, you know, not not so much kind of weird animals. That's a, um, no. that's a good way to look at it, I think. <laughs> not yeah. alien, it's just incredibly well adapted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, you know, we get we take underwater maps as we go as well, and that's really exciting for me at least to see a landscape come to to life. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever spent any time on Google Maps 
and you download the satellite kind of layers and then you just look mm. at the ocean. It's all blurry and mm. there's a few, you can kind of see a few hills, but not really because it's all kind of this coarse data from satellites. And then we go over it and we just reveal it in all its intricacy. You know, like you see the, the valleys and the hills and the mountains and the ridges and the cliffs and, yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, yes. And we have we have mappers on board who are just – so this comes out in real time, you know. And one wow. time <clears throat> we were having a barbecue. There was some – I think someone's birthday or something. So we all met together to have a barbecue on the deck for lunch. And we went over this amazing volcano, wow. you know, a whole caldera, you know. So that's where it's it's blown its top and that's all shunk in. So it forms this massive crater. And then often you get a smaller – um, uh, volcano in the middle as well, so it's like an eye, and uh, yeah, it's just it was just phenomenal. And so we everyone just rushed down there to see this thing appear on the mapping system. It was just just amazing to see it in its all its glory. This thing rising hundreds of meters from the seafloor in this huge volcanic shape. You know, wow, what yeah, an yeah. incredible experience yeah. to be floating yeah. over a volcano. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, it was like several kilometres below us because yeah. the weird the weird thing about seamounts is often they're quite old and they're made of a really heavy rock. So you've got a volcano coming from the seafloor. It blasts its way sometimes all the way to the surface. But because it's really heavy lava and the seafloor is kind of much softer rock, over time it sinks. Uh, mm -hmm. So you've got this whole island come up and then they sink down one or two kilometres um, wow. Over time, over tens of millions of years. So you got these sunken things. So this would have happened to this seamount as well. So it would have been much nearer the surface, and perhaps even above the surface, and it's sunk over time. So it's wow. extraordinary. Oh, that is extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. And, and with something like this volcanic seascape that was sort of detected for the first time um, and, you know, mapped, um, that's something that was just stumbled upon because the investigator was out there? Or was um, there an inkling that it was there? Well, from those, those grainy, fuzzy satellite maps, we can kind of gain a sense, oh, there's something big over there, mm. you know. <laughs> and and so we can head over there in the ship and then and then map it from there. But it goes from being a fuzzy blob to, to yeah, as I said, amazing mountain range. Um, yeah, it's really – there's this one seamount called Murfield, which is um, 100 kilometres away from Kirkus Keeling Island. And the only reason we know it's there is because a ship ran into it in 1973, <laughs> right? This, right? This bulk carrier, a British bulk carrier, just actually hit it because it comes to within 16 metres of the surface. So this oh. enormous thing, right, is 70 kilometres across, is is rising. Like, it's probably Australia's largest mountain. It rises to 16 metres below sea level, and you cannot see it from the surface. Like I was looking, I was taking pictures of the surface when we were right close to the top. And and you just can't tell it's there. I mean, some people say they can, but I don't think so. But, um, but yeah, and so and yet there's this huge hulking mountain just below the sea. You know, it's just it's phenomenal. And so so a ship ran into it. <clears throat> yeah. So and that's the only that's the first reason. So the sea mount's in fact named after the ship. It's called Murfield. Wow. Anyway, I mean, it's it's, it's, <laughs> it's one thing to discover these small small <clears throat> animals and deep sea creatures that you know live kilometres and kilometres underwater, yeah. but to be discovering whole huge yeah. landscapes underwater, yeah. um, it's yeah. it's it's vast in, yeah, in really. perspective, isn't it? Well, the two, so they did create two um, marine national parks around both Cocos Keeling Island and Christmas Island, so for Commonwealth waters. 
and uh, they're great marine parks. They sort of high protection rules and stuff. So it's really great outcome for marine conservation. Together, the two uh, marine parks are larger than New South Wales. Wow. That is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. So we're there for the first time going over seamounts, um, yeah, and and sort of just just scratching the surface really because they're so large, you know. Wow. Yeah. What a what an excellent outcome for yeah. um for the research and for conservation in the yeah. area in general. You say sort of, you know, we're scratching the surface or scratching the surface of the ocean, so to speak. Um yeah. what do you think um is gonna be the next sort of the next steps and the next research and um exploration sort of aims and objectives for the investigator and deep sea research in general? Not sure about the investigator itself, but I think there's going to be a big push over the next 10 years to explore the high seas. So that's the area between nations. So, so um, no one owns it. um, And it's, some of it is kind of managed by the UN. um, Mm. And up to now it's been managed for mining and fishing and various other things like sort of exploitative things. Um, but increasingly, people see the need to be able to protect areas as well. So the United Nations have just come up with a an instrument to sort of be able to create marine parks in the in the high seas that are sort of like owned by everyone, I suppose, the world. Um, and mm. uh, people will need information. So I can see the need over the next ten years to actually really make an attempt to explore the you know the high seas yeah and and that hasn't tended to happen a lot in the past i mean the soviets and the us and, and stuff and all the the old empires they kind of went everywhere but you know normally a nation likes to spend on its own borders but there's a real need to kind of fill in the gaps between the, the nations as well brilliant um mm. and tim you know it is national science week um, so a chance for the Australian public to get very excited about the science that we're doing in Australia, and this is, you know, an incredible example of it. You're going to be presenting a lecture um, or a talk, a presentation. Yeah. I won't say lecture. Yeah. It's going to be, it sounds like it'll be fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure, sure. So it's on um, Wednesday the 16th of August, and uh, so I'll just be presenting a whole lot of photos and images and maps of these seamounts that I talked about, the volcanoes and all the weird and wonderful fish, the beautifully adapted fish, even though I'm falling into that weird and wonderful. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, come and see it. You know, it's, it's, it's here we are talking on radio, but it's tried hard to conjure up the mm. kind of the, the, the marvelous kind of nature of a lot of this stuff. But if you come and see the, the, the lecture, it's about an hour long, 40 minutes maybe of talking and then questions and stuff. So, yeah, I'd love to see everyone there. And so so please come to Museums Victoria and enjoy some science. But not only that, we've got lots of other stuff too. We've got David Suzuki. Um, Yeah, the futurist. And so he's appearing on the IMAX screen all the way from Canada. Um, So we're going to have a special IMAX um, session with David Suzuki. And am I right in thinking that both um, your Wonders of the Deep Sea talk and David Suzuki are available for people to watch online? 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, yeah. That's probably a detail I should know. I know definitely they've all been recorded, and I, yeah. I, I guess sometime after the event. I'm not sure if it will be live streamed or not. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's live streamed sure. as well. Yeah, so, okay. um, yeah. you know, if you can't make your way down to the Melbourne yeah. Museum Theatre um, yeah. uh, or to the IMAX, then you can jump online, uh, witness for yourself, Tim O'Hara's presentation on the wonders of the deep sea um, and look at some of, gaze upon some of those um, incredibly well-evolved animals. <laughs> yes. you're, you're, you're changing the way I'm talking about it. Yeah, already, yeah, Tim. yeah. Thanks, Claire. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tim, thank you very much for joining us today for our special National Science Week, Lost in Science, um, for your stories of the deep seas, for, um, you know, changing our mind about um, how we look at those underwater deep sea critters um you know it sounds like it's straight out of a Jules Verne novel but it's actually real life and it's happening right now um science is incredible um so make sure you if you're in Melbourne head along to the lecture or you can stream it online and Tim thank you again thank you very much not even any short range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, the JWST, that famous expensive space telescope, has, uh, look, it's seen a lot of things in the brief time that it's been operating, but and some of these have really surprised people. And the main one seems to be that it has seen a lot of very bright galaxies in what we believe to be the very early universe. So these are galaxies that are so far away and so far back in time, um, but they're very bright and much brighter than we expected them to be under the leading models of cosmology. And well, was was there? Is there some reason why they shouldn't be bright? This is this is one thing because I have read a little bit about mm-hmm. this, but I don't really understand why were they expecting them to be dimmer? Is it just because they're so old, or oh, because no, because you expect stars and galaxies to take a while to form. So a very bright galaxy means it's quite large with lots of stars generally, mm. Mm. and it's like these galaxies are too young because they were that far back in time to have to be have that many stars and to be that bright essentially. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it's caused some people to question, uh, I suppose, what we're operating with as a standard model of cosmology. Um, the so-called Lambda CDM model, which is um, Lambda for the dark energy and cold dark matter. Um, and look, you know, there are different kind of theories about that kind of tweak this. Um, there was one that made a bit of a stir recently where uh, I got a bit of a boost from Joe Rogan. I don't know if you saw this, but I, I try. I try not. I try not to pay any attention to Joe Rogan. Admittedly, so I did miss this bit. Well, you didn't have to listen to Joe Rogan. It turns out to, to hear about this. So what he there's some someone put out a paper that posited that perhaps the universe was nearly twice as old as it is believed to be. So instead of being say 13.8 billion years old, as all the other data we have says, they're saying it could be like over 26 billion years old. Um, and it uses this idea called tired light, which is basically that light loses energy as it travels across distances. And this explains 
um, what we're seeing as, you know, kind of the age of the universe. It's a complicated theory. Um, but anyway, Joe Rogan seemed to like this and it got a bit of attention and briefly led to a lot of people believing that this was the case. And in fact, for a while there, if you went to Google and you typed in what is the age of the universe, it would tell you it is 26 billion years old. Um, which maybe This is one of the one of the shortcomings of, of AI scraping the internet for answers to things. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, look, we're not going to go that far. We're not going to upend things that much. Thankfully, it seems to have been fixed. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. It's what occurred to me is the dangers of AI. But look, I mean, look, we shouldn't be entirely upset about the space telescope revealing these things because, look, if we build something that big and that expensive, it's good to have it find things we weren't expecting. Um, you know, I'm looking at you, Large Hadron Collider. <laughs> it, would, it would be very boring to spend all this money to find... No, we were right all along. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Okay. So instead, um, there's a few other theories. There's one that, that's caught my attention. Now, I'm not endorsing this theory in particular, just I like the sound of it, I suppose, shall we say, uh, mostly because it has the name Dark Star. Great movie. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so <laughs> this, is, this is the idea of that they, what we could be seeing is something called Dark Stars. And these are uh, a theory that was put out by um, Catherine Fries from the University of Texas and colleagues. And this is the idea that these there could be stars essentially made out of mostly dark matter. So back in the early universe, we expect there to be dark matter to be a lot more dense. And so this idea is that the dark matter could have condensed um, and created these star-like objects, which is what we're seeing instead of these um, these early galaxies. So this relies on an idea of dark matter being... So dark matter, I should explain, is some invisible matter that we believe makes up... It's I can't remember the current number. Um, it's 25% of the universe, of the mass of the universe, essentially like that. Um, so it's much more than there is of visible matter. And it's responsible for kind of the structure of the universe and also for um, pulling galaxies together and the speed they spin at. It was first you know, hypothesized to explain the spin speed of galaxies. Um, but we don't know what it is. And one of the leading ideas is it's some, it's some fundamental particle that hasn't been discovered yet. And they tend to call these particles WIMPs, which stands for Weakly Interacting Massive Particles. So they're particles that have mass, but they interact through the weak nuclear force or some sort of similar force. Um, for a long time, the alternative leading theory was machos, which were massive astrophysical compact halo objects. So they were kind of large things that were just, say, you know, like um, burnt out stars surrounding galaxies. But yeah, the WIMP theory is beating the machos in this particular case. Nice for a change. Yeah. So WIMPs, the idea of WIMPs is that they don't interact much with normal matter, um, but they can interact with each other. Like if two WIMP particles collide, then they will annihilate, we're giving off um, high energy gamma rays, which then can create other particles, etc., etc., etc. So the idea essentially is that if you had these dense accumulations of dark matter, then they, you could get these dark matter particles colliding, and they would give off radiation, which then could be trapped in these kind of clouds of early hydrogen gas that was kind of hanging around these galaxies. And so you could get these enormous clouds of gas that glow just like all the energy gets trapped inside. You know, that glow just like stars, except they're a lot bigger than 
normal stars, but they're not powered by fusion. They're powered by annihilating dark matter. Right. So, and that's why we can see them, because they're so bright. Yes, yeah, so they'd be so big. So, like, they're kind of saying roughly um, at their basic level about 10 astronomical units, which is 10 times the distance from Earth to the Sun in diameter. So, yeah, they'd be absolutely huge. Uh, and so, yeah, this is an interesting idea. Now, what they need, obviously, is further data to confirm this. Um, we need better view of these objects to see if they're, the spectrum and the the elemental composition matches the predictions for dark stars, which is kind of going to have um, hydrogen and helium and pretty much nothing else because they're not fusion-creating other elements. Um, and also to see whether they look more like stars or more like galaxies. Now, they're obviously a long way away. It's hard to get a good view of them, but sometimes if you get lucky, these galaxies or stars can be magnified through gravitational lensing, which is where you know other objects bend space and so you can get a better view of them. So hopefully with better data, we'll be able to see more what they're made out of and whether they're more like a star or a galaxy. But yeah, again, it's an exciting idea. We haven't been able to detect dark matter on Earth in any of our particle experiments. Um, it kind of makes more sense that if there's a lot more of it out in space, especially in the early universe, we might get a better look at it. So yeah, here's hoping that uh, the data emerges and we see some dark stars. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.